0: I want to tell you something and that is operating a food company has been one of the most challenging endeavors of my life from innovating products that we want to land at the intersection of taste and nutrition to wrestling with supply chain issues and managing inventory. I have had more sleepless nights in the past three years than I have in the last 30, including the 12 when I was a firefighter. But no one tells you that food is hard. But I also want to say, it's because of each of you that we continue to get in the trenches day after day after day. It's in our core values to keep at it, knowing that we are filling a giant void in the market with products that you can't find anywhere else and this makes it easier for us to climb out of bed each day. I want to thank you for your patience. We are anxiously awaiting the return of our organic pancake and waffle mixes and we're excited to announce that our Plant Strong milks will be available online later this week followed soon thereafter by the return of our exciting new burger mixes. Our goal is to be your reliable and trustworthy partner for all things Plant Strong, allowing you to stock up on healthy meals that you can make and enjoy in minutes while still managing your busy lives. I appreciate each and every one of you and want you to know that the effort will be worth it once more brands start to care about the integrity of the nutrition that they're putting into their products. Thank you so much for your support and please stay tuned for exciting updates at planstrong.com
1: for most of these diseases they're running in our families not because of genetics but because within families we're making the same lifestyle decisions Mm -hmm. right and you know so you mentioned there. You know, a lot of people will say, well, high cholesterol runs in my family or high blood pressure runs in in my family. And look, to a certain extent, that could be true, but keep in mind that it may be running in your family because your family is adopting the same lifestyle. And what that means is that. There is a strong chance that if you make changes to your lifestyle, particularly your diet, which we know is the biggest lever, that you can start shifting the blood pressure, the cholesterol into a favorable direction, which then is lowering your risk of, of these diseases, particularly your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke, which, you know, the leading cause of death in this country.
0: and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your PlanStrong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, my PlanStrong cousins. I want to welcome you to another episode of the PlanStrong podcast. I am your host, Rip Esselstyn, and I hope that you've all had a spectacular Thanksgiving holiday And as we head into the rest of the holiday season, your spirits are high. I think that you know by now that our team here at Plant Strong is always seeking the truth about health, nutrition, and research because the proof truly is in the truth. The proof is also in the plants, and no one epitomizes that more than today's guest, Simon. Hill. If you don't know who Simon is, he is the host of the wildly popular Plant Proof Podcast, and he's also the author of the new book that just landed in the United States, The Proof is in the Plants. He is a physiotherapist and nutritionist who is passionate about making nutritional information simple and accessible so that people can make informed decisions About the food they feed themselves and their family. He is also, as you're going to see, a walking encyclopedia on the research and the science that proves beyond the kale that a plant based diet can save your life and the life of the planet. Today, we go deep on a number of different topics that I know you're going to love. It was a treat to have this stud of an Aussie right here in Austin, Texas. And I want you to know that I squeezed as much information as I could out of him. And I am so grateful to Simon for being so generous with his time and his knowledge. Now, before we hop into this conversation, I want to share a couple of updates with you. First, we just announced our 2022 retreats, and you're invited to relax, refresh, and recharge with us. You can join us March 1st to the 6th in majestic Black Mountain, North Carolina, right outside of Asheville, or October 10th to the 15th in stunning Sedona. For details on either, go to planstrong.com and select the location from the menu. Also, more great news, our Plant Strong unsalted organic broths and ready-to-eat chilies and stews are now available nationwide through plantstrongfoods.com. We've just unveiled our sampler packs so you can try one of each flavor and you can enjoy free shipping when you spend $60 or more. Now, my cruciferous cousins, let's get into this conversation because it is jam-packed with proof from Mr. Plant Proof himself, Simon Hill.
1: Simon Hill, great to see you again. Rip, it's a pleasure to be here, back in Austin. I'm yeah. glad we're doing this in person. Me
0: too. It's been a long time. I haven't done many of these in person in about two
1: years, so I might be a little rusty. Yeah. I'm so used to seeing people on a screen. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Human to human contact.
0: Yeah. You know, <laughs> here we are.
1: Yeah. It is different, but it's nice. It is. It is.
0: Although, you know, who was just in town in Austin as well, I think you saw him was Rich. Yeah. Rich Roll. Yeah. And so, I was with Rich. He was sitting right where you are. Okay. Uh, exactly a week ago Friday. Yeah. He
1: told me about that. And I had, bet that was a good conversation. Oh, yeah. It was, you know. Yeah. He's a great guy.
0: Absolutely. Can't say enough good things about Rich. So, I think the last time I saw you, you were in Austin and then yeah. you had
1: me on, on your podcast. Yes. Which is still to this day one of the most popular episodes.
0: Wow. Well, that's so. that's nice to know. Um, but it is called the Plant Proof uh,
1: Podcast. Um, and you launched that, what, three years ago? Yeah, I started that in, I think the start of 2018, the very beginning. Yeah. So nearly, it'll be four years pretty soon. Really didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> Did we ever? <laughs> and I think that was actually what enabled me to get started because I had, you know, I had no sort of expectations or fear. I just kind of turned up and started recording and uh, I would hate to probably go back and listen to those first episodes, but it's been fun. You learn something every every time, right? And you just get better and better and you feel more comfortable and uh, it's such a great way to to learn, you know, and share information with other people. Yeah. But a long time ago, it seems like –
0: I mean, the name of your podcast, The Plant Proof Podcast, Mm. the name of your new book, The Proof is in the Plants, right? um, So, at some point, like, when did you decide to become a man of science? Like, and and Mm. you got to prove it, right? I mean, show me the proof. (laughs) The proof is in the the, the science. And,
1: uh, like, tell me about that journey. I think that was drilled into me by my father. He's, uh, a 40 year, uh, professor now. He's been, you know, publishing studies for the last, yeah, four decades pretty much since he did his PhD actually here in Texas. Wow. So it all started here in Texas. <laughs> uh, he, he did his PhD in physiology at Texas A&M mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, has, gone on to to have a very successful career in science. His area of science is sort of deep mechanisms under a microscope, looking at how our arteries function and looking at risk factors for cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, etc. Now, all of that really meant nothing to me as a kid, <laughs> yeah. but I could see how important science was to him. And he would teach me little things along the way and you know, there was there was stacks and stacks of papers always printed out all around the house and in his car and highlighted, and uh, so I could, I really appreciated the role of science, I guess, in in helping us look at what are our. What, what does our intuition say? What are our hypotheses? And how can we use this method of science to test that and then make more informed decisions? Uh, so, yeah, it really goes back to my, my childhood, I guess. It's kind of all I know and all I can remember.
0: Yeah. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty darn cool. I mean, because both you and me, were, it sounds like, are greatly influenced by our fathers. Yeah. And the path that they chose and how that – uh, had a way of seeping into us mm. right and uh or informing our journey
1: and it's hard not to when it's like when it's so important to them and such a big part yeah. of their life you know as as their child and you're surrounded by that all the time it's impossible not to be affected by that and you know i i think my love for science was born out of his love for science yeah. uh so you know it's it's nice now to to get to a stage where I'm old enough now to appreciate that.
0: So will you so let the the plant strong audience know uh, a little bit about your background as far as yeah. like so you you didn't grow up in the states. You grew up down
1: under, right? Well, <laughs> when dad was doing his his PhD here, I was living in Texas. Okay. So believe it or not, I had a southern accent. <laughs> I'd learned to speak here in Texas. And so when we moved here, I was I was one and a half years old, yeah. and pretty much learned to speak here. So I had a very you know Southern American accent. And we lived in Texas for three years. Then we went to Virginia for uh, about five years in uh, Virginia Beach. Yeah, nice. And then you know I was about eight years old by that stage, seven, eight, I think something like that, maybe nine. My brother is three years older, and. My mom in particular wanted us to go back and do uh, the rest of our schooling in Australia and be close to her. She has three sisters and be close to all of our cousins, et cetera. So, we moved back uh, home and I always knew that I would – when I finished school, science would be something that I would explore further. I didn't really know what area of science at one stage. I'm sure I thought I would, I would just follow my dad's footsteps and, and be in the lab coat. You know, I, I can remember always, you know, spending a lot of time on weekends with him in his laboratory mm. and watching him on the microscope. And I, I did at one stage think that could be for me as well, but I was playing a lot of football and. Uh, in, in the football club environments, I was surrounded by physiotherapists. And I think in this country, they call it physical therapy. Yep. And so, I, I thought that was a, a pretty cool area of health and science and a, a nice blend of understanding physiology and anatomy and would enable me to work in, in an environment and culture that I really enjoyed with football players, and so I pursued that. And uh, so that was my undergraduate degree. That was a four-year course, and I finished that and started working with professional footballers in Australia, and uh, really, really enjoyed it. And uh, you know, I had a, a great time pursuing that part of my career, and and then you know. A few various events unfolded and my curiosity led me down the path of of nutrition and I was back to university to do a master's in nutrition science yeah. and, uh, you know, ultimately exploring that and digging into that was where the, the passion was was born for Plant Proof and the book and, and trying to share some information that can help people make sense of all of this confusion that's out there. Yeah.
0: So I got this probably three days ago. I was late to the party. And um, this came out in Australia, what, like
1: six months ago? Yeah, so – uh may 1st in australia yeah. and it's uh, i'm not sure when this episode's going up but we're sitting here at the start of november yeah it's meant to be on shelf now but there has been delays with covid so uh, i think it's going to be on shelf throughout the states in a couple of weeks right um and you know there's there's an audible version that i read as well Oh wow! Um, but yeah it's not far away
0: well and I gotta say that I absolutely devoured this thing in, in about three days. And it is a it is a tour de force. Uh unlike anything that I've read in the plant based world. And I think like even a, a guy like Michael Greger would go, Holy shit, Simon like knocked this thing out of the park. Um, yeah, it's really spectacular. So that I mean, I means a lot coming from you. <laughs> I can't imagine the labor of love that you've poured into this. I mean, how many years did you spend, you know, kind of putting this together?
1: I think the actual writing process was about three, yeah. which is you know a pretty significant chunk of time to write a book, and you know what that's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a fun, but it can be a frustrating process at time <laughs> at times. But uh, you know, there were there were a lot of a lot more years before that in terms of just learning and and reading science and, and, you know, well before I decided I would try and put something onto, onto paper. Uh, But yeah, that's a, that's a big compliment coming from you, mate. So thank you. Oh yeah. Um, Let me, let me start by just kind of like
0: setting the stage the way you set the stage Mm. in, in this book. And you know, you throw out some numbers like right now, 71% of all deaths globally are coming from chronic disease Mm. I think you also talk about how many of these chronic diseases start super early like maybe even in some cases
1: in vitro. Mhm. And that's really important because you know we we often feel particularly in the earlier parts of our years that chronic disease is not going to be something we're going to deal with for a long time. But Understanding that there is a long latency period, you know, you don't just wake up one day and you have clogged arteries. It's bubbling away under the surface for a long time. And, you know, you know this and your dad talks about this all the time. So the earlier you can make the changes, the the better you're, you're going to stop that bubbling away under under the surface. And and then when you get to your you know 40s, 50s, and 60s, which is the time where a lot of these chronic diseases start to pop up, you know, hopefully your health is in a much better position, and and you won't be relying on the healthcare system, and you won't be be dealing with health issues, and your quality of life will be better. Yeah, yeah. I was just at a function speaking to
0: 400 police chiefs uh, just a couple of days ago. And I can't tell you how many people came up to me afterwards just to let me know that they had high cholesterol or they had hypertension or whatever, but it ran in the family and it was very much genetic, right? And you, in this book, you refer to the Danish twin study, mm. which is super eye-opening as far as I think anyone that thinks that, you know, it's, it, it's all in my genes, there's nothing I can do about it. Can you, like, let us know about that yeah. study?
1: Yeah, and this kind of goes back to my personal uh, – the first time I saw what loss of health looks like. You know, I saw my dad have a heart attack in front of me. That's right. And at that point in time, you know, he was very lucky to survive. It was a helicopter to the nearest hospital and he was only 41, you know. And Rip – Looking at my dad then, and I have lots of photos, so I know, you know, I know from my memories, but now I also have these photos to look at at him when he was 41. He didn't look unhealthy. Mm-hmm. He was living a typical Australian lifestyle and eating the typical Australian diet. And he was still, you know, going to the gym and trying to do all, all the, the sort of right things. And this came uh, out of nowhere. But, but where this ties into your question is following that incident- when the cardiologist sat our family down, he, you know, essentially made it very clear to my brother, who was 18 and I was 15, you know, your dad's had a heart attack. Your grandfather, so my dad's dad, he had a heart attack as well. This, this is running in your family. And we know that cardiovascular disease runs in families. So as you get older, you'll need to be screened. Now, that there's some truth to that and there's some good advice there but it's where the conversation ended so for a long period of time my brother and I certainly felt that we were dealt we were dealt bad genes that was our card you know cardiovascular disease was in our family and you know more than likely we would just follow down that path and and that's bad luck but studies like the danish twin study have been able to tease out you know how much do our genes have to say when it comes to these diseases that we've ex- sort of accepted in our society as normal that other societies around the world have not Yeah. versus how much does nature, the environment, the way we navigate through life, those decisions that we make on a daily basis, how much do they have to say? And identical twins are the best uh, sort of way to tease this out because their genes are exactly the same, but if they go off on different paths – you know, what happens to their outcomes? And you can see from these studies that genes perhaps uh, control about 20% of your health fate. Mm-hmm. But your, your environment and the lifestyle decisions you're making are, are having about 80% of the say. So, four times more powerful. And when you, when you think of it like that, it then becomes clear that, you know, hang on. For most of these diseases- they're running in our families not because of genetics but because within families we're making the same lifestyle decisions, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, so you mentioned there, you know, a lot of people will say, well, high cholesterol runs in my family or high blood pressure runs in in my family. And look, to a certain extent that could be true. But keep in mind that it may be running in your family because your family is adopting the same lifestyle and what that means is that there is a strong chance that if you make changes to your lifestyle particularly your diet which we know is the biggest lever that you can start shifting the blood pressure the cholesterol into a favorable direction which then is lowering your risk of of these diseases particularly your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke which you know leading cause of death in this country
0: you have a you have a line in there and i've i've heard it by lots of different people but it's lifestyle um no it's it's (laughs) it's genetics loads the gun that's right lifestyle is what pulls the trigger Mm and um eh, that is uh it is so true and i think what people need to realize is that they can totally you know out trump any genes they've been dealt with what we're talking about right here today Mm so, I'd love to kind of, at a kind of a high level, dive into different sections of your book. Sure. Um, I mean, this thing's—you know—this is a 400-page, you know, Torah triumph, like I, like I said. But like part one, you you say it's a diet of confusion, um, and I don't—you're not referring to the plant base. I think you're re- referring mm-hmm. to just kind of everything that's floating around out there. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about how we basically you lead with like we have our food environment let me let me rephrase that. Our food environment should focus on foods that promote health and reduce the environmental degradation of our planet. Yet that's not the case and mm-hmm. it's far from it. And you cite basically three overarching reasons mm-hmm. and that is we've got this rigged food environment we've got a hijacked healthcare system mm-hmm. and then thirdly we have a for-profit nutrition culture, and so it seems like we are up against mm-hmm. like almost an impossibility here. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And then, what is there anything we can do to come out on top here?
1: Mm. It's a this is a, a a very important question. I think you know the the sort of individual advice and uh, certainly you know, what listeners can do today is super important because I think giving people information that can help them make changes in spite of the food environment and ahead of changing our food environment is really important. Think about if you got that information, you know, in the 1940s about quitting smoking and you acted while you were 20, 30 years ahead of when the regulations came in to start, you know, putting taxes and, and adver- have advertising restrictions, etc right And there would have been many people that didn't act and they unfortunately, many would have died. They would have developed lung cancer and, and lived a, a shorter life and a life with lower quality of life uh, lower quality of life. So uh, the individual education is important, but I think to really solve this, to make a big dint in the, in the chronic disease burden, the food environment has to show up differently. And the convenient, easy, affordable choice needs to be a healthier choice than it is today. And we've got that backwards, right? And why? Well, there are many influences and they're powerful influences that, uh, you know, large transnational food companies that that really want to to operate in an underregulated market. Mm-hmm. And uh so what that what that ends up looking like is a whole heap of hyper palatable, ultra processed foods that uh you know are are very poor at satiating us. They're very easily overconsumed. They create what's called hedonic hunger.
0: Yeah. I never heard that term before.
1: Yeah. So you hedonic hunger is your you're craving more food, but you actually, there isn't, you do not have a physiological requirement for that.
0: Does it come from the base like hedonistic?
1: I think so. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, these, these food manufacturers are, are very good at formulating the food in a way it r- hits that bliss point and yeah. you will continue to eat beyond your phys- physiological uh, requirement. Um, and, and so, uh, Essentially, one of the most important things that, that I feel we need to do is to change that food environment. And there are a number of public health strategies that are starting to be implemented in certain countries to varying degrees, which, which, uh, are you know, preliminary sort of reports are showing them to be successful, but this is going to require a very multi pronged approach. You know, things like restricting the marketing of unhealthy foods to children. Mm-hmm. Really important. You know, we, we need, we should be setting up future generations from the start with a healthy diet. And, and so we know that those marketing restrictions, they do work and not just restricting what's on TV, but also what's at the, the, the sporting stadiums where kids are going now what's showing up on their mobile phone, you know, and they're being advertised. I think it's 50 to a hundred times an hour by ultra processed foods on their, so on their mobile phone, Mm -hmm. if they're a social media user. Mm -hmm. So there's things like that. There is taxes on, on sugar, which countries are, are playing around with. And sometimes, uh, there is a, a sort of reaction to that where uh, some people feel that could be seen as unfair and it could, uh, it could penalize uh, more so people of lower socioeconomic status. Yeah. And it's a, it's a fair point, but I also think we need to remember that chronic disease is disproportionately affecting people of lower socioeconomic uh, class. So they actually need more help and, I would agree that if you're going to tax certain foods, making them more expensive, you need to subsidize on the other side Mm -hmm. healthier, you know, foods to make them even more affordable for these households. Uh, Wasn't one of the, one of the, um, countries that you cited in your book
0: was i think the philippines yeah is doing something with the with the sugar beverages yeah the
1: philippines and and brazil uh uk have actually uh got a a sugar tax that's that's been implemented and seems to be successful so far Mm -hmm. the uk have also which i think is a great initiative they've banned uh ultra processed foods at checkout Mm. so those impulse purchases um these are the kind of, uh, of strategies that we need our our governments to get behind and to create policy to enforce those. So grocery stores have to to do that. Uh, there's a very interesting uh, area of science called choice architecture. Mm. I didn't write about this in my book so much, but Harvard University has done a lot of different uh, studies, and they did a study with Boston, uh, a hospital in Boston, and. They were really interested in looking at a couple of things. If you, if you have very clear, uh, sort of labeling that helps a consumer decide is that healthy or not. And in this case, they used a green light, mm-hmm. an amber light, and a red light. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they graded foods based on how processed they were, you know uh, how much saturated fat and sodium did they have of course those those foods rich in those were were red and then you know as foods got a little bit healthier, they were uh, amber and then the foods were green that you know had fruits and vegetables in their whole form and whole grains and uh, you know plant protein, for example and the first, this was a two phase study they did. The first phase was just to go into the kiosk at the, at the hospital mm-hmm. and label all of the food with the traffic light labeling system. And just in doing that without anything else, they saw a significant increase in the consumption of healthy food. Mm right? So, very simple uh, sort of intervention and, you know, great, great success off the other side. And it wasn't even removing any of the unhealthy food out of the kiosk, right? They were still giving people choice, but just helping them make a better choice. And so, that's, a, that's another sort of nice uh, intervention that people can look into. And, and, and I think that, Various countries around the world now are starting to look at those, particularly at school settings and hospital settings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then they did uh, the second part of that study, which, which saw an, an even greater increase in, in the consumption of healthy foods, was actually how the foods were positioned on shelf. And this is super important. So, they, there are a lot of studies showing that whatever's at eye level – people are going to buy more of so they shifted the healthier products to eye level the sugar sweetened drinks to the bottom you know again simple not removing the choice from people but just changing the architecture and and it's, it's quite a neat way to do it and then also what they did within that choice architecture experiment was instead of having water in one or two places they put water in six or seven so, it was strategically placed around the kiosk in more locations. Again, they saw, you know, through that part, uh, phase two of the intervention, a huge increase in the consumption of healthy foods and a much bigger increase in the consumption of water. Uh, so, these are the kind of interesting things that I think we need to be looking at, leaning into, to better set up the grocery stores, better set up the, the food in our hospitals, better set up the food in our schools, and people will, on their own accord, make a healthier decision. Uh, there are a whole lot of other things that that need to be explored. One of the things I write in the book is about the revolving door. Mm. And I was super interested to, to learn about the revolving door, and it's this phenomenon where <sighs> – People from within our government, and it happens here in America, it happens in Australia, they go between a, a position in the government that is, uh, you know, a position where they can create policy to a very high position in the food industry. And they go back and forth. And these close relationships between food industry and government, really, we need to be questioning should they exist? Mm-hmm. Because as long as there's those close relationships, the skeptical in me has me wondering, is, is the main motivation here about protecting the industry and protecting their profits? Or is it about serving the public, which is what government should be doing, and prioritizing health? So, there are countries now around the world who are stepping in and saying, hey, if you're in the government and you leave – cooling off period you can't work Mm -hmm. in the food industry for three five years for example and so that's another sort of strategy that i think i would like to see more countries leaning into and just cut those ties between government and and industry
0: yeah curtail the revolving door
1: yeah let's get
0: rid of it yeah no i think that that's absolutely like prevalent just about everywhere yeah i mean think about it i mean the food industry it's such a uh well, it's so
1: huge, it's so powerful, it's so profitable, and uh, there's lots of mm. money. And in Australia, there's, uh, there is some regulations around if you donate to a political party, because the food industry will make donations, yeah. particularly come election time. Uh, there is some regulation around if you donate and it's over a certain amount of money, it has to be made public. However... That amount in Australia is $13,800, and I found this super interesting when I was researching for the book. So, what do you think happens? They just make many, many donations just below $13,800 to keep it discreet, Uh, which is, again, you know, I think we need to be questioning whether we want the food industry to be donating money into the government to run these campaigns uh, and to be establishing these ties um, which then go on to affect the policy that is or isn't made, ultimately affecting the food that uh, everyone in our country is, is consuming on a daily basis and then ultimately affecting the chronic disease burden. Mm, it is rampant.
0: Let's So, let's, let's go to the… Um kind of our, our hijacked healthcare system mm-hmm. and uh, you like for example in Australia you mentioned how I think it's 1.7% of your national health funds go mm-hmm. to prevention that's right like that is like just it, to me in light of where we are now in 2021 and the amount of science that we have mm-hmm. showing that these major chronic diseases can be halted and even reversed that 1.7 uh, goes to that I mean
1: that that's crazy. It's, a, it's a, a very sort of reactive uh, approach and we need to flip that on its head. And a lot of that feeds in and back to the, the food system, but also beyond food to uh, education and uh, uh, programs that focus on physical activity. Yeah. Uh, and so, it is, it's disappointing to see that that (laughs) 1.7% is, is going into prevention. And there are some other countries like New Zealand who are actually investing a little more. They're up around seven to 8% of their healthcare budget. Uh, but I do feel like it, it, It is going to reach a tipping point. It's probably already there where it becomes too large to ignore. And when it's costing the country too much in terms of loss of productivity and in terms of the actual healthcare cost to help manage these diseases, then, you know, perhaps we'll see that approach to healthcare switch and and flip on its head. Uh, And I think, you know, I'm sort of careful when I talk about this not to to sort of blame doctors because yeah. doctors are great people and they all go into this profession to help people. The problem is they're in this system where, where they can only really help people once they have established disease, which is great. We still want them to be there for that. But in an ideal healthcare system, we would be able to prevent a lot of this disease from occurring in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so – uh, you know, a lot of work needs to be done to to change that. But tackling that, tackling the food environment, um, you know, two two very big things that a lot of countries need to be focusing on in the next couple of decades. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, uh, you know who Kim Williams is. Yeah, yeah. So I had Kim on the podcast not too long ago, and he. You know, one of his goals when he was the president of the American College of Cardiologists, he said was to basically put ourselves out of business, put mm-hmm. cardiologists out of business. And you can imagine the uproar, right, that, mm-hmm. that came from <laughs> these cardiologists. Like, no, no, don't be taking away my 600, you know, to yeah. 800K annual yeah. salary here, man. I, <laughs> I want to put that stent in and I want to do that bypass. Mm-hmm. It's exciting stuff for me. And... Uh, prescribing sweet potatoes and brown rice Mm -hmm. and you know leafy greens come on man that's not where it's at
1: (laughs) yeah well i mean there there's this that it doesn't come without its challenge uh but these doctors you know we need to find a way for them to work within the healthcare system where they are remunerated sure but for preventing the disease and, and for creating a healthier popla- population which at the end is, is a happier population, which is a more productive population.
0: So like you mentioned cigarette smoking just a, a little while ago, we now have, I mean, what over 7,000 studies or plus showing that cigarette smoking, you know, is, 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 is bad for our health. You mentioned in the book in 1964, we had the U S surgeon general report that basically, you know, let everybody know that cigarettes are bad mm-hmm. for us how many scientific studies are there showing that a plant-based diet and what it can do for a chronic western disease and when will how long will it take before mm-hmm. you know what we're looking at
1: with food is similar to what happened with cigarettes is there a lag time of like 30 40 years i'd say that the guidelines are already pretty much there in terms of if you look at the american heart association guidelines uh now they a new one came out yesterday or the day before the twenty twenty one guidelines. Yeah. And if you if you read through that, they they speak about plant based dietary patterns and they talk about the DASH diet and a sort of very plant based Mediterranean diet and they talk about vegetarian and, and whole food plant based diets in there. Um, and they're pointing people in that direction. And then in their sort of summary of of um, dietary sort of guidelines in that pa- in this brand new paper they're of course advocating for fruits and vegetables and whole grains when it comes to protein and this is a big change for them the very first thing that they say is to choose plant protein over animal
0: and these are these are the guidelines for this it. is
1: in the american heart this association is, okay. 2021 guidelines okay. okay so you know they're not they're not saying adopt a completely plant-exclusive diet, yeah. but they are now being very clear to choose plant protein over animal protein. And I think that's that's the beginning of a change from a big organisation like that. It's yeah. great to, to see that now in those guidelines, which a lot of people respect and, and look to, and certainly a lot of the doctors around the country are looking to those. Yeah. Um, so to answer your question, I think there are big changes actually occurring. Uh, and every single guideline, you know, that that I read now, be it out of Europe or out of this country, including like the endocrinology guidelines or the American Cancer Society, they're definitely very plant forward mm. guidelines. Um, now, when will we see the, the kind of changes that we've seen with smoking with regards to advertising and taxation. And, you know, perhaps we could think about the meat industry. I think there's some problems with how meat is subsidized and, and also what they're getting away with in terms of the environmental impact mm-hmm. and really the, those ex- externalities should be factored into the price of that product. Yeah. Uh, I think we're perhaps a little way away from that. There's, you know, some very powerful uh, – it's a very powerful industry that's stopping a lot of that regulation from happening um, mm-hmm. at the government level. But I think at a healthcare level and a health professional level, across the board now – Definitely, unless you're looking at very sort of fringe carnivore, mm. uh, low-carb crowds, which are loud but definitely not the consensus, across the board, everyone is on board that the scientific evidence is very clear. If you want to prevent chronic disease, then you want to be adopting a diet that is very, very plant-rich. Mm-hmm. Mm. You,
0: you mentioned in the book, you cite an example as a country that's kind of like getting it right with its nutritional guidelines as Canada. mm mm-hmm and uh, and what their kind of flute food plate yeah. looks like. Uh, can you describe that?
1: Yeah, so that is – that came out in 2019. Uh, and, again, similar to what the AHA have sort of just, just put out, this is a, a largely plant-based plate. It's the first time that Health Canada has removed dairy as an essential food. Mm. And – they there was some commentary around that, and I think it might have been mm. might have been da- <laughs> David Jenkins. Maybe I may have I may have that wrong. I can't remember who made this comment, but they they said that on the formulation of these guidelines, dietary recommendations out of Canada, this was the very very first time that they did not allow industry influence. Mm. That's a big statement, and the the result is this very plant forward plate. As I said, dairy has been removed as an essential food, which came as a shock to a lot of people because I know when I was growing up in this country, it was all about having three glasses of milk a day, right? I was chugging that down. And, you know, I thought I needed that for strong bones and that was the only way to get there. And uh, also in their guidelines – Very similarly, they say choose plant protein over animal protein where possible. So, you're starting to see this very consistent messaging and that's because, as you sort of alluded to at the start, there is so much science actually looking at populations and clinical studies all around the world showing that when you're doing that, when you're choosing legumes over beef, when you're choosing legumes over poultry, Mm -hmm. and the more consistently that you're doing that, the lower your risk is for these diseases. Do you
0: know if the if the uh, Canadian guidelines also include the environmental um, mm-hmm. footprint
1: that each each? Footprint- yeah, but the the Canadian guidelines and the AHA guidelines out mm. from this week both mention the environment mm. and sustainability and the importance of uh, again. You know, understanding that plant foods have a much lower environmental footprint. You know, they, they, to produce, for example, a hundred grams of protein from, from beef compared to producing a hundred grams of protein from tofu, Mm -hmm. there's 30 to 50 times as much greenhouse gas emissions. And to produce that's that amount of beef compared to, to tofu requires 74 times more land. And the, the problem with using a lot of land is, you know, we, we have to, in many cases, create that room, which means Clear clearing, yeah. and uh, we're either clearing to put animals on pasture, or we're clearing to grow crops that are then fed into that industry uh, and so it's a very inefficient it's a it's a very uh, a hard process on our environment uh, deleterious and and uh, and so it is nice to see that these dietary guidelines are now saying, hey you know if we're going to talk about human health here, yeah we have to understand human health is tied to planetary health, and they're assuming some responsibility for that so again, I think uh coming back to the original question i think we're making big progress you know to see these big organizations saying look this is the science this is how we need to shift the dietary pattern across our population for people and planet i think it's it's amazing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well you you mentioned the inefficiency of it and i know in the book you talk about for example
0: how a cow 97 percent of the of (laughs) The calories that a cow takes in basically yield 3%. Uh, Isn't that incredible? It, it's crazy. It's absolutely insane. And and then I think with a chicken, you say, you know, it takes in what? Th- I'm just going to say 3,500 calories. And then
1: basically then you, you when you eat it, you're getting like 300. Mm-hmm. It's something. It's just the inefficiencies mm-hmm. are just mind-boggling. It kind of gets – it's the, the least efficiency is like the biggest animal, right? The yeah. cow. Because the way I like to describe this is just think about that animal. It – it requires energy just to be alive. You know, it has a basal metabolic rate like us. It's burning fuel just to be alive. So, a lot of the energy that you're feeding into it is not turning into muscle. Yeah. It's it's just being burnt up to, to keep that animal alive and then also goes into a lot of parts of the animal that we don't eat. And so, it is a very inefficient process. And the, the point that I really wanted to make in the book there was that we talk about food waste and food waste is very important. Mm-hmm. But often what we're talking about is food waste, you know, at the restaurant or in our home. Yeah. But what about the food we're wasting inside that system? Yeah. You know, if you were to, to, to look at the – if you were to take the amount of food that was required to produce three kilograms of beef and you were to stack that side to side, the plant food versus the beef, I think most people would go, holy shit. Yeah. Wow, this is this is a every time I pick up that steak at the grocery store, that's how much went into creating that. Yeah. And that's how much we lost. And when you sort of reconcile that and you think about the environmental impact of that and you think about the fact that so many people in this world do not have food security and enough calories, it, it makes you start to question how everything is, is currently set up and, uh, you know, the changes that we need to to see to move to a world where the we have a, a sort of planet-first approach yeah. with our food system and we're creating greater equity uh, and a, a fairer, more just system. We need to get there and we need to get there as fast as, as humanly possible.
0: And, you know, the to me, everything you just described here, I mean, look at your your subtitle how science shows a plant-based diet could save your life. And then, and
1: Mm -hmm. the planet, um, they're so absolutely interconnected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we do need to get there as fast as possible. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I, I, I get extremely frustrated with this pace of, of the changes and uh, I know the, the COP26 uh, sort of climate summit is on right at the on moment right and, you know, it was disappointing to see that there was a lot of meat on the menu and I think it is, is I've, you know, from what I've read, there is some improvements from previous summits but to see a lot of red meat still on the menu, uh, it was interesting.
0: Well, so you, you bring that up and so I did a little research into COP26 Mm -hmm. and, you know, their, their goals are to be net zero by the middle of the century, by 2050. They want to, you know, obviously keep the planet from raising another Mm -hmm. 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, and keep that within reach. But what they've did is they asked all the countries that were coming to the meeting, to come with timelines as far as, A, when can they accelerate the phase out of coal? Mm-hmm. B, when can they curtail deforestation? C, when can they speed up the switch to electric vehicles? And then lastly, when can they encourage the investment, continue to encourage the investment in renewables? But to me, they're completely missing the, the forest through the trees, right? Mm. Big pun intended there. Because where is, right? We got (laughs)
1: to transition to a
0: plant-predominant diet.
1: Yeah. And. I think there's a few reasons for a lack of political will to talk about diet. It's seen as unfavorable. A lot of governments historically have not wanted to go there because as soon as you start telling the population what they can and cannot eat, uh, you know, it's it's much harder to get the support of of the population, right? Uh but don't you think but you, you have to you have to you don't tell them what to eat and what not to eat. You have to there has to be some salesmanship there. A hundred percent. Uh and and you know you need to sell the benefits. Let's be clear: the benefits here are are huge. We wouldn't be having this conversation if they weren't. So, uh, it is about improving the quality of life and the happiness of the population. It's not about you know changing the way people consume to make their their, their life worse off. Um, I think we should be clear on that, but sometimes it can be perceived by someone as, you know, an infringement on, you know, their right, for example, to eat meat and, and you hear all the time, you know, when people talk about this idea of meat tax, a lot of people get upset. Uh, in that list you just reeled off, one of those points was curtailing deforestation Right. So, maybe they didn't address diet directly, but, you know, leading, leading cause of deforestation in Australia right now is the, the beef industry. Yeah. Uh, and so, and, and, and pretty much around the world, the leading cause of deforestation is, is for uh, livestock. So, um, you know, it is kind of in there. Uh, I would like to see it a little more prominent (laughs) than than that. But there are a lot of organizations at COP26 who are there to change the food system. So, uh, my hope is that if if out of COP26 we get another kind of Paris agreement, you know, so they may sign an agreement off the back of this, uh, that there is some pledges in there to help shift the population to more plant-forward, plant-rich, plant-based dietary patterns yeah. and the strategies that they're going to, to use to get there. Um, I'm not sure if that's asking too much. I don't think it is. I think, as you alluded to earlier, we have to get moving. And right now, the attention on coal it's it's warranted, like sh- sure, but we we have to realize that if we just address the way we're producing energy and we don't look at diet, we don't solve this problem. Mm-hmm. And so, if you if you factor in uh, the direct emissions right now from from uh, the food systems and agriculture, plus you look at land use and the deforestation, because that comes with a huge uh, uh, sort of carbon cost. Uh, to it, because you're clearing all these areas of land that are natural carbon sinks yeah. that are our ally; they're helping cool the planet and draw carbon down. Uh, so you have this twofold effect: you're getting rid of these natural carbon sinks, and then you're using that land and it's producing emissions. Uh, so uh, if you consider all of that, right, and 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 look at the emissions from that in totality. That is around 30 to 35% of total greenhouse gas emissions. So, our food system, uh, for a long time, we have overstated uh, – we've over-understated how impactful the food system is on planetary health, and we need to get moving. Well, I've heard a bunch of different numbers. I mean, I've heard as much as – You know, the the typical number that
0: we hear in a lot of the documentaries Mm -hmm. is 14%, Mm -hmm. right? The same as all Mm -hmm. forms of transportation combined. I also heard that in, I think it was 2009, there was a uh, a paper written by the World Watch Institute, part of the World Health Organization. um, And, uh, no, the World Bank, rather. And they came out with... Uh, the paper called Livestock's Long Shadow, mm-hmm. showing it was actually 51%. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so... And, and then most recently, have you ever heard of a guy named Celeste Rao? No. He's from Stanford. He's a director of a non called Climate Healers. Mm-hmm. He actually has done some Research and studies, and uh, he's actually has it as high as 87% between the supply chain and the
1: life cycle mm-hmm. of these 80 billion animals, the deforestation. Mm-hmm. It's a good that. point. Uh, you know, the definitely today. I think, you know, there, there's, so there's that range that you sort of speak of. And that's why I don't use 14% anymore, because it's, it's very clear that that 14% was not considering so, yeah. so many other aspects of the food system and agriculture, uh, and drawdown, uh, Project, they recently released a report and they they speak exactly to what you just mentioned that there is this range. There's um, some uh, evidence to suggest it might be 51%, maybe even a little higher. And then they kind of land at, well, it seems that it's definitely at least 30, 35%. So that's that's the kind of figure, I guess, which is a little bit in the middle of some of those where I'm using at the moment, um, which. I think when people hear they go wow it's actually a large large chunk you know we're not just talking about a small percentage and 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 therefore we can yeah. just move from coal to yeah. electric uh to to renewable energy and we'll be fine we we need to be uh tackling both of these things at the same time
0: well I think if we want to get to those goals that COP 26 is set about right net net zero by 2050 keep the the planet from (laughs) going up to Mm -hmm. 1.5 degrees celsius we got to address the food without without it i don't know if we can we can even come close to getting there Mm -hmm. um so i mean green energy green food speaking of of green food let's let's now transition to our health Mm -hmm. right because you've got a whole whole part two is all Mm -hmm. about our our personal health and you start out by tackling kind of, I think, the number one pandemic in <clears throat> in the states, and it's probably starting to, you know, tackle us, you know, globally here, and that's just how we're all becoming overweight and obese. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really it, it's nothing short of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how do, how does a plant based diet work to help curb mm-hmm. uh, being overweight and obese? Where do people start?
1: Well, if I was to kind of summarize yeah. why a plant-based diet can be very favourable from a weight point of view, a lot of that comes down to the the lower calorie density of the diet and the fact that it's rich in fibre. Those two those two factors, and and maybe if we start with calorie density, yeah. I think that's a, an interesting one, uh, and that. That is why ultra-processed foods are, uh, you know, so problematic when it comes to managing our weight because they're very, very calorie-dense. And there's a a researcher, Kevin Hall, Uh you've probably heard of him, right? He's like a a famous sort of uh, American researcher, does very tightly controlled metabolic ward studies so that you can bring folks into an inpatient setting and really get a good idea as to what's going on because you know every bit of food that they're eating and he compared uh, an unprocessed whole food diet to an ultra processed diet uh and in this study what what he was able to show uh was that <coughs> he i should take a little step back yeah because he he it was a neat study design he he actually matched the two diets for protein for carbohydrates for fat for sodium for fiber between the ultra processed and the processed so they're exact same exactly the same right very interesting and uh, you just have one one set of meals are unprocessed and the other are ultra processed and this is interesting because you, you, you may sort of assume our oh, ultra processed foods, they're lower in fiber. They're higher higher in sugar. That's probably why people overconsume them. Yeah. Uh, now what he did was in this study, it was a, a crossover trial. Uh, you would consume one of the diets for two weeks and then you would consume the other diet for two weeks and subjects did that in a randomized uh, order and, uh, what he was able to show, and they, these subjects were told, given meals, and they weren't given a calorie limit. They were just told, eat until you're full. Mm-hmm. So, we're looking at satiation here. And uh, what he was able to show was that when subjects were eating the ultra-processed foods, they ate on average 500 calories more per day. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, over the course of the two-week, they they gained about a kilogram of of weight, so 2.2 pounds, pounds, around about that. And then on the other side of the trial on the unprocessed diet, they lost that kilogram or 2.2 pounds. And this is just a short-term trial, but it it does sort of um, speak to something very important here, that even when these macronutrients and sugar and sodium and fiber were matched, people were still – eating more ultra processed foods and kevin hall uh stated a couple of his sort of hypothesis as to why he thinks that's happening yeah why and the the first one is that calorie density you were getting more calories per bite In the ultra processed foods so they were uh the volume of the food was was lower so you could potentially eat them much quicker Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. and if you're eating food that's very calorie dense and you can get more in quicker perhaps uh instead of uh getting those hunger signals having time to feel full and your brain saying hey you've had enough you're sort of um you're missing out on that, that benefit, that feedback loop that you would normally get with a more whole food diet. And then the second one, which I think is, is really interesting is that we know that fiber, prebiotic fiber in particular, when it is metabolized by our microbiome, the microbiome feed on it, they, they produce compounds and a lot of these compounds reward us and, and in particular, some of the downstream effects of this fermentation of fibre in our large intestine is the production of appetite-suppressing hormones, and
0: is that the leptin and the ghrelin?
1: Exactly, and also uh, uh, another yeah. uh, hormone called PYY and uh, GLP one. And so uh, the idea here is that you know, sure, they matched fibre, but just putting in one type of fiber into an ultra processed food does not match mm. the fiber found in a diverse range of plants and from a mechanism point of view that does make sense because we know that you know we we call it fiber but that's an umbrella term there's so many different types of prebiotic fiber and that's one of the reasons why eating the rainbow is so important you are providing this sort of substrate All of these different types of prebiotic fiber to different species of bacteria, which then are producing varying um, metabolites that have these health effects on us. So, super uh, interesting. Um, But that's one reason why a a plant-based diet based on whole foods is… Particularly beneficial from a weight point of view, uh, because you're you are lowering the calorie density of the diet. The second is, you know, certainly the fact that the uh, a plant based diet is much higher in fiber is very important, and we sort of just spoke to some of the the benefits there. Um, but we know that that fiber is You know, particularly important for regulating the the appetite, Um, and so when you combine these two two factors together, you end up feeling full on fewer calories.
0: And um, why
1: do you guys spell fiber F I B R E? Is that just the way it is? Because uh, here it's E. That's right. And Dr. B gives me a lot of stick Does for he? that. <laughs> uh, I said to him, you'll have to change the title of your book for Australia. Yeah, yeah. He didn't. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why, but we also spell center. e n t r e. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, I mean, and in the book you have a chart and basically let me say that the graphics and the charts that you have in here are insane. They are spectacular. So I don't know who you got to Chloe, help you,
1: but she's great. Wow, she would love to hear that. Way to go, Chloe. Yeah, she's amazing. But
0: you you talk about like the average American is consuming fifty eight percent of their calories from mm-hmm. these ultra processed uh, calories, and I think in Australia it's a little bit lower. It's like fifty two percent. But I mean, it's it's the odds are stacked against you when mm-hmm. you know. The typical Americans consuming almost sixty percent of the calories from these high calorie mm-hmm. dense foods that aren't filling them up, aren't satiating mm-hmm. them, that um, that don't have fiber. These guys mm-hmm. are stripped of fiber completely.
1: Exactly, and that's you know often I'm asked just just tell me one thing to focus on. Just give me one thing, mm-hmm. and. Uh my response to that is the average fiber intake in, in this country is about 12, 15 grams, depending on the kind of study you look at, maybe a little higher in Australia. But you want that up north of 30 grams a day as a minimum, and it might take you a little bit of time to sort of get there and, and allow your microbiome to adjust. But that will automatically straighten up people's diets because the only way to get there, mm. and I'm not talking about getting grandma's Metamucil and just having right. 30 grams of that, I'm talking about accessing this diverse range of fiber through a diverse range of plants. And uh, you know, if, if, if you were to focus on that, you would automatically start crowding out right. these ultra-processed foods that we're talking about. So what would be,
0: what would be that one thing you'd tell people to do? up their fiber would you give them a mm-hmm. specific goal like eat how many different kind of yeah there's fruit, vegetables, i mean grains? there
1: is a a great study out of um called the gut microbiome project by uh, dr rob knight and he was really looking at uh the composition of our microbiome and he had ten thousand plus stool samples people all around the world really big study and he was able to show that compared to people eating, uh, you know, 10 or fewer plants per week, those who were eating 30 or more mm. had significantly more diverse microbiomes. And we know that a, a diverse microbiome is associated with better health. Healthier people have a more diverse microbiome. So, I do often talk about that and this idea of trying to eat 30 unique plants. And it can become a bit of a game. It's fun for yeah. people. Uh, and again, you know, everyone has their own starting point. You don't have to jump from six plants a week to thirty overnight. You can step that out slowly, and and I think that uh, in some ways that that is better for allowing your microbiome to adjust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a, a ver- an interesting study out of Stanford. Uh, that I'll I'll summarise just quickly. That kind of speaks to this. They compared fermented foods versus f- a high f- high fibre diet, and uh, fascinating study. Dr Christopher Gardner, have you have you come across his work? No. no. Okay, we're going to get him on your show. <laughs> okay, he, he's he's uh, from Stanford University. Really, really fascinating guy, and does great studies, yeah. and. Uh, He and his colleagues wanted to look at is there a difference between adding fermented foods to the diet and adding fiber in terms of microbiome composition and in terms of inflammation and how our immune system is functioning. Really interesting study. 10-week study, two groups. One group took their fiber from 20 to 40 grams. One group added fermented foods and it was about six serves of fermented foods. So it's a lot. Um, but in, in future, they're going to run further studies with less to see if you can still get the same benefits because that's what they saw in the fermented food group across the board. People had increased in diversity. So, you know, this is a, a great case for adding kraut and kimchi to your diet. Uh, and, uh, so they saw across the board increase in this diversity and a decrease in 19 of these inflammatory protein markers. So uh, signs that the immune system was more robust. And uh, as I said, that was across across the board. Pretty much every single subject that added fermented foods got that benefit. On the other side, the increasing the fiber. So what I found really interesting, certain people had the same thing, increased diversity Decrease in inflammation. Now, others didn't see that. And some people actually saw an increase in inflammation by adding the fiber. So, uh, and that's not to scare people off fiber. It's just, uh, a really interesting finding. And I think it does line up with some of the feedback that I get from people mm-hmm. who say, Hey, I've, I've added all of these plants and, uh, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable. I'm feeling bloated. Uh, uh, maybe plants are not for me. And, I don't think, I don't think at all that it's that plants are not for you. I, I think in this case, and this study speaks to this, they went back and looked at, okay, so some subjects on the fiber arm did well and some did poorly. At baseline, at the start of the study, when they was there a difference in their microbiome, and there was. So those who had a nice, Diverse microbiome at the baseline, mm. they did very well when you added fiber from 20 to 40 grams. Those who had low diversity. So perhaps these are people who have been eating a lot of ultra processed foods, mm. perhaps a lot of antibiotics in their history, for example, and you know, had what we would describe as a sort of a weak gut. When they increased their fiber from 20 to 40, they didn't go so well. Mm. And I think the takeaway points here are that. Uh, you know depending on where you're sort of starting from you you may need to take a bit of a different approach if you're finding that you're increasing your fiber and you're, you're not feeling great you're feeling a bit uncomfortable then you might need just to back it off and allow your microbiome more time to adjust and it will mm-hmm. as you're slowly increasing the plants in your diet you're the the good gut bacteria that we want more of they will proliferate and the pathogenic ones will begin to to be suppressed and over time you'll be able to handle more the other interesting thing from this study is that maybe if you are struggling to increase your fiber the addition of fermented foods first Uh, might be a good way to increase the diversity and then start to add more plants to your diet so that's uh, an interesting study, and those that those researchers are going to go and test some of those hypotheses in future studies. That's interesting. It's so funny. I, I've I've never loved fermented foods. I mean, I do like tempeh. Tempeh counts as mm. a fermented food, right? Well, or no? <laughs> it's interesting because uh, I would say that tempeh, and it's a it's a amazing food. I eat a lot of it. Super healthful, but from a kind of uh, traditional definition of a fermented food. What they were using in this study were foods that had live cultures. Mm-hmm. And so with, with tempeh, usually it's, it's heated yeah, yeah. and the, the probiotics are killed off. So, uh, does it have the same effect? I'm not sure that we know that. But in saying that, there is a lot of interesting science coming out showing that even dead bacteria seems to have a beneficial effect on the microbiome so i'm not sure we fully understand that but i think my advice based on that study was they use a lot of kimchi and kraut so if you can try and work that in there are a lot of plant-based yogurts now that have live cultures in them as well um so that's another one that people can can consider um and yeah, yeah fermented foods yeah try and get them in
0: yeah no that that's interesting about certain people having a hard time when they start uh, upping their fiber intake i know when i got the guys at fire station two Mm. to do this there was one guy in particular that after every meal he'd be like double over double double overed because he just was bloated he got gassy he was just in pain but probably two or three months later he was absolutely fine Mm. it just took him a while to kind of
1: to kind of work up to that kind of a, a, a mm. load, yeah. That's and that's a very kind of typical response for some people. Uh, you know, everyone that that I've worked with who has struggled at the beginning, they do get through it, and I think that's an important takeaway point: is that even if you've taken had a lot of antibiotics and the worst diet for a number of years, uh, you know, from the age of about two or three. Our microbiome is set in terms of the actual species we have, right? And that's really interesting. So, even if you take a lot of antibiotics, you might lower the diversity, but you still have the same species there. You just need to feed them the right food for them to proliferate and create that diversity that you want again. So, you have everything in you that you need. You just need to to build the strength and it's like going to the gym, yeah, yeah. If you haven't been to the gym uh, ever and you walk in and you, you pick up, you know, let's call it 30, 40 pounds and try and bicep curl that, then you're going to be very, very sore and you perhaps will cause an injury. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you go in there and you pick up a weight that is comfortable but still a little bit challenging and you, over time, progressively increase that overload, your body will adapt, you will grow stronger, um, and you'll achieve the goal that you're setting out to. Um, all right, let, let's, let's move on to heart disease,
0: mm-hmm. the number one killer of Americans, cardiovascular disease. Um, you, in the book, you cite a what I thought was a fascinating study. I think it's the 108 West African Green Monkey Mm. Green monkey study, I think, something mm-hmm. like that, um, where they fed, you know, a certain half, yeah. you know, kind of
1: a, a high fatty diet and the other one more of a whole mm. food plant-based diet. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so this is uh, intra- This is animal-based research, but they're, they're looking at these uh, green African monkeys. Yeah. And Do you know what year this was? <sighs> That's a good question. Uh, there's been a few different studies looking at yeah. this, but... <laughs> I'm gonna say it was in the 90s, maybe.
0: Okay. The reason I ask is because I know that my father was very much um, excited by some studies mm. that were done with green monkeys yeah. that influenced him and his research. Yeah, I with think heart
1: I think some of this research was done through the 70s, but then maybe the paper I cited in there was like 98 or something. Yeah. Um, but you know, very clearly they show that when these monkeys are fed the high saturated fat diet, their arteries clog. And, uh, you know, that relationship between dietary fat, cholesterol – and heart disease is one of the most established relationships that exists and it goes back all the way to the early 1900s and then you know the work in the 1950s in the metabolic ward like Ansel Keys was doing where again bring people in feed them different fats animal fats versus plant fats what happens to their cholesterol um and it's very clear that if you want to Jack up your <laughs> cholesterol levels, particularly your LDL cholesterol, then eating a, a diet rich in saturated fats is a good way to do that uh, so I mean I, I put that in into that 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 part of the book there just to emphasize that this is not just something that we see in humans. We're also seeing it in non-human primates as well, consistently not just those monkeys but a whole lot of, of other uh, species yeah. as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in your opinion, what w- if you wanted to avoid heart disease, what's the like number one
1: uh, food you think people should stay away from? Oof, that's a great question. I mean uh, – Based on current diets, I would say, uh, I'm going to say two, red meat and dairy. Uh Yeah. Is that because of the saturated fat or is that because of the trans fats or a combination of both? I think the, I mean, there are trans fats in those animal foods. Uh, Trans fat consumption has gone down a little bit Uh uh, with reformulation of ultra processed foods, Uh, but- there are some trans fats in there, which certainly do affect your cholesterol levels, but they're also the greatest contributor of saturated fat in the Western diet. Um, so I think currently in America, the, the amount of saturated fat in the average diet is about 13% of total calories. And we know that when you actually get that down south of 10%, is there's a significant reduction in the risk of cardiovascular disease. And then if you have. Existing cardiovascular disease is a very strong case to be getting it down much further, you know, 5 6%.
0: I think the uh, AHA you mentioned earlier, the American Heart Association, mm. recommends below
1: 7% mm. of calories coming from saturated fat, mm. so... And really, the only way that you can get there is by eating a diet which is either predominantly or completely plant-based. It's very difficult to get your saturated fat to that level when you're eating a lot of animal products. And is it fair to say that saturated
0: fats, for the most part, only exist in animal products and animal byproducts
1: except for maybe nuts and seeds there's some mm-hmm. saturated fat there's some saturated fat in nuts and seeds but i would say one of the advantages of nuts and seeds is that they're rich in polyunsaturated fats yeah. and so uh like Ansel keys his initial work which was then built on by hegstead in the 90s uh actually showed that um saturated fat raises LDL cholesterol twice as much as polyunsaturated fat lowers it Mm. and there's an equation that he has called the Hegstead equation now Um, so nuts and seeds you may get some slight offset of the the saturated fat content through the unsaturated fats that are in there as well Um, but yeah of course you're still going to get saturated fat in a in a plant-based diet but Uh, I think the recommendations, you know, the ones that you just mentioned there from the AHA to try and get it below 7% are are good ones. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. What about, uh, what are your thoughts on cholesterol?
1: Dietary cholesterol? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that, again, um, and the science on this is really fascinating because if you look at a whole lot of the research, you could be led to believe that it doesn't affect your LDL cholesterol at all. And there's a reason for this and it's because as you increase dietary cholesterol in your diet, it doesn't just keep increasing the serum cholesterol, it plateaus off. And so, if you just take uh, a population of people who already have a high background intake of dietary cholesterol, let's say they're already eating a lot of meat, you know, uh, chicken contains cholesterol as does red meat and so does dairy. And if you take someone like that who already has sort of four or five hundred milligrams uh, of dietary cholesterol, and you add in you know a couple of eggs to their diet? Sure, you won't see a big impact on their on their cholesterol. But if you if you were to take all dietary cholesterol out of that person's diet, yeah. then you would see a, a reduction in their serum cholesterol. Is it as impactful as saturated fat? No but it still is uh, impactful. And given that the average LDL cholesterol in this country is about 130 milligrams per deciliter. And uh, there's a lot of work now showing that even though doctors are recommending to get to about a hundred, mm-hmm. really it's not until you're down at 70 or lower that you see people who, who do not have atherosclerosis. So, uh you know i'm sort of of the opinion that in a society where the average population is way the the average cholesterol is way above where it should be then we should be really trying to limit our exposure to saturated fat and dietary cholesterol Mm -hmm. uh, as much as possible and moving that um that that risk factor into a more favorable direction
0: you know when i had um Colin Campbell on the podcast, um, who I think everybody knows yeah. of, the the China study and whole mm-hmm. and, you know, one of the most amazing biochemists on the planet. Um, he mentioned to me that another, another thing that raises cholesterol that most people are completely unaware of is animal protein. Mm-hmm that it jacks it up. I don't know if you've seen that in your research because you're
1: Mr. Research. Yeah. I, I haven't seen any of that science, but it's interesting. I've seen, I've seen him talk about it. I mean, uh, yeah, it would, it would be something that I would need to go away and and look at. I wouldn't want to comment on it.
0: Maybe in the, the proof is in the plants part too. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: but it, but, I guess um, that yeah. question speaks to also the importance of not being too reductionist. I think saturated fat is very important, but there are other aspects of these foods that affect cardiovascular disease. You know, even heme iron yep. is is clearly associated with cardiovascular disease, uh, and so… Uh, I guess we need to be careful that it, it's it's not just one nutrient um, it's a collective of things and it's also the fact that when you are eating the red meat continually what are you missing out on mm-hmm. well instead you're not having those legumes which are rich in fiber for example and phytochemicals which have you know uh, offer a- enormous benefit and protection against cardiovascular disease so it's kind of a, a twofold uh, effect here yeah yeah um-
0: so let let let's move from heart disease to cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is
1: it about meat and dairy mm-hmm. that incite cancer? There's a, a a range of different I guess properties in meat in particular, and and uh, I guess ultra processed meats and red meat, um, and. We mentioned heme iron. That's one significant um, sort of component of these foods, which is believed to be carcinogenic. And so, uh, there is mechanistic research showing that when you consume a lot of, of red meat in particular, which is very rich in heme iron, A lot of that goes through undigested in the small intestine, gets into the large intestine and can damage endothelial cells and is believed to be one of the contributing factors to colorectal cancer. Uh, Then, of course, you've got nitrates which are put into uh, – which are not to be confused with nitrates in plant foods yeah. and green leafies because they go down a different pathway and are uh, extremely beneficial. I'm sure you've spoken about nitric oxide on this show with your dad before. Yeah, I have. I have yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, – I'm telling you, I'm, I'm telling you something that everyone's already heard. But uh, on the on the flip side, the nitrates that are in uh, these ultra processed foods, and to a lesser extent, uh, ultra processed meat, and to a lesser extent in um, unprocessed red meat, they're packaged next to different molecules. They're not next to the uh, antioxidants, the, the vitamin C that's in these plant foods. Instead, they're next to amines. And uh, as a result, they go down a completely different pathway. Mm-hmm. They end up being converted into these N-nitroso compounds, which again, at a me- mechanistic level, are uh, have been shown to be carcinogenic. And so, um, that's another kind of component. Um, there's new 5GC. There's, there's, um, you know, polycyclic ar- aromatic hydrocarbons. There's heterocyclic, uh, amines. You know, the list kind of goes on. And what you see quite clearly is that. Uh, when you, if you consume about 50 grams of ultra-processed meat a day, which let's be honest, that's not a lot, right? Mm. Uh, your risk of colorectal cancer goes up by about 18, percent mm. and uh, whereas with red meat, that's uh, not ultra-processed, it's about 100 grams of red meat a day. Will will do the same thing to your risk of colorectal cancer. So these are very clear associations, and we see these around the world. Um, there are some studies that haven't found those associations, and often uh, people point me point those out to me. And I think one of the critical learnings here is uh, exposure levels really important. Mm -hmm. So, there are studies out there that have shown no clear association, but it's looking at a population in Europe where they're really consuming, you know, much lower than 100 grams of red meat per day. In some of these studies, 40 grams, for example. And so, you start to see- How much is 40 grams? 40 grams is- Give me a size. uh, Like probably like two thumbs- worth something like that maybe a touch bigger yeah. um but not a lot right and and you start when, when you get to that level you know you start to see the association get weaker sure but um there is a clear association once you get to about 100 grams a day you will significantly increase your risk mm-hmm. Uh, and then dairy is a dairy is an interesting one for me um, because when it comes to colorectal cancer, there's actually evidence that it can be protective and uh, oh, come on. Yeah, I know. Right. Uh, and I dug into that because I found that very interesting. And you'll see the, uh, the world cancer research fund uh, in their recommendations. They talk about this and, I don't think it's that that dairy itself is is protective yeah. it the mechanism seems to be calcium and that when you have uh, sufficient calcium in the diet, it does seem to be protective against colorectal cancer. So, uh, I don't think that that finding suggests you need dairy in your diet, but if you're removing it, you want to make sure you're getting enough calcium. Um,
0: And we are on a plant-based diet.
1: That's right. So, there are a lot of different ways. And again, dark leafy greens come up there, uh, tahini. There are a lot of ways to get calcium. Uh, And and, and I think it's good that a lot of the plant-based milks now are (coughs) – are fortified mm-hmm. with calcium, and a lot of the plant-based yogurts are starting to do that too. Uh, and then prostate cancer, there's some uh, evidence to suggest that dairy increases the risk of prostate cancer. So, uh, you know, I think overall, uh, there is from a, a cancer point of view, it is very clear when you zoom back out and you just look at uh, total risk of, of cancer. These plant predominant or plant exclusive diets. People eating this way do better. And so, if you look at the vegetarian or vegan cohorts, they do have significantly less risk of uh, dying from any form of cancer. So, uh, I think it's it's good to zoom in on the individual food, but then it's really important to zoom back out mm-hmm. and look at total dietary pattern. And, you know, from a, from a cancer point of view, that's where the whole plants definitely seem to win. Mm-hmm um so do you love like diving into the research
0: and, re- and reading these studies and i do yeah is that something that you had to like learn to love or because it seems like a real skill to be able to do that. i
1: do like uh and i like being challenged like that the the looking at the data for example on dairy and colorectal cancer i found that very interesting because that was kind of that was news to me that the association there uh was was that dairy was protective um, and you know getting into these studies and, and looking at compared to what what exposure level are we talking about what cohort are we talking about uh, all of these little bits of nuance yeah I, I find it very interesting and I think mm-hmm. it's it's something that's often left out of the, the mainstream media kind of headline oh, yeah well. Um, I mean most people wouldn't know where to begin as far mm. as when it comes. I mean, I I'll read a research some research
0: and I'll be like, Whoa, this is like this is like kinda over my head. Mm. I've gotta like kinda get my education up to my nutritional literacy up to a certain point in order to even like grasp all this. So my I mean, you got your master's in nutritional science. Um and you were interested in this before you got that, am I correct?
1: Yeah. And and you know, it doesn't really just stop with the university. Like uh, yeah. now it's, it's a daily practice like anything else. And. I, I lean on so many people who are way more experienced than me to to workshop a lot of these. And when a new study comes out, I'm in a bunch of different groups where people are sharing new studies and talking about them. What are the strengths? What are the limitations? Yeah. What does this study actually show us? Oh, when we zoom back out and look at the totality of the evidence, where does it kind of fit in? And how would this affect recommendations? So, uh, it's an ongoing process i've mm-hmm. certainly haven't mastered it a long way from mastering it but um wow. certainly something that i enjoy but so tell me this uh this program this master's mm-hmm. in nutrition science how long was it four four, four years four yeah years. you can complete it a bit quicker if you wanted yeah. So yeah four years yeah and you you probably went into it
0: with a certain um knowledge or even bias And then did you find that what you were learning, um, was some of it, did some of it feel antiquated or like, were they pushing a certain agenda, so to speak, or was it completely like wide open?
1: I get asked this so much. I I think it depends on the unit and the. The uh, teacher of that unit, and so I had sort of different experiences. You know, in some of the units, it was it was very very evidence based, right. and um, you know it w- the unit was more focused on on uh, teaching you how to look at evidence, but then letting you go and look at the evidence and make sense of it and, and writing about it. Um, so I was certainly able to. Uh, to express myself, you know, based objectively based on how I was looking at the research and I wasn't getting any pushback. And I would say overall, mm-hmm. given that the course is so evidence based that the you know the recommendations are up to date and they're very very plant forward and all all of this stuff we're talking about um was yeah. was covered within the course and um you know they're certainly recommending that people eat much more whole plants and and less animal foods and less ultra processed foods so uh you know across the board I was I was pretty happy. There were, there were certainly some moments in there where I'd read something and think yeah. Yeah, that's a little outdated, but um, on the whole uh, it was good. It was a good experience. Did
0: you find yourself challenging the, the uh, instructors?
1: There, there's a bulletin and a discussion board and uh, yeah, you know, in a, in a kind of uh, gentle way, I would, yeah. I would uh, ask questions and, Did and become- cite some research yeah. uh, and, and, there was always really healthy conversations about that stuff. And, and I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the teachers and the ones that were very engaged in the discussions, they, they want, they also want to stay on top of the research. Yeah. So have you know, having someone send some science that maybe speaks, uh, to, to, <laughs> uh, looking at something through a different lens, um, yeah, you know, it was generally received very well by these guys. Yeah.
0: Were you one of the older or younger people in the uh, – I would say
1: uh, probably sort of towards the older, uh-huh. I'd say. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome that you went back and you devoted, you know, however much time and four years to that. I mean, way to go. It's awesome. Um, what, about, what about organic versus conventional
1: when mm-hmm. it comes to – cancer. I know you talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, not much data, to be honest. There's a couple of studies, uh, observational studies, one out of UK and one out of France. And uh, so they look at you know people over a, a period of time. These are large cohorts and look and see, is there a difference in the incidence of cancer depending on whether someone was consuming conventional or or organic uh, food. And across the board, they they tended to find that there wasn't much difference, Mm. albeit for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, a certain type of cancer. There seemed to be slightly increased risk in those consuming conventional but then there was also, in, in one of those studies, a, a, an interesting finding where uh, women consuming more organic food had higher risk of breast cancer, for example. And there could be many reasons to kind of explain that other than organic food. It might be that women buying organic food are more likely to go and get screening. Yeah. And so, uh, what… What was, I guess, interesting from these two studies was that there was no real alarming jump-out finding across the board. If you're eating conventional, you're going to have increased risk of all of these cancers. That certainly was not observed in these studies. Uh, so, my I'm often asked, well, what do I recommend? And, uh, you know, I, I would like to see a lot more research done on that. But my position today is that We are not in the health predicament we're in because people are failing to eat organic. Mm -hmm. It's because people are are just not eating fruits and vegetables and whole grains, nuts, seeds and legumes of any um, type. So, uh, I think we need to be clear that in these studies showing huge benefits of plant-based diets, it's not- just in studies where subjects are consuming organic food. yeah. Um, so there are benefits up for grabs by adding more uh, whole plants on your plate, no matter how they're grown. Uh, and then, you know, Should, is there any reason to, to kind of choose organic? I think maybe there is a slight signal there for non Hodgkin's lymphoma. So perhaps you could sort of buy organic where possible. There is some studies showing organic food is a little bit richer in antioxidants, Mm -hmm. um, which is interesting. But again, if someone can't afford organic, you could make up by that for that. Just by eating a little bit more fruits and vegetables, yeah. um, so which to I, me is
0: very comforting.
1: Yeah, for, for, I mean, there's some people
0: that they're. It's got to be organic. If it's not organic. I'm not touching it. Mm. And I don't. I think most people. Uh, I would have to say that most people in America are probably buying conventional stuff. Yeah, not organic. And I think it's comforting to know that you know what you can be eating, fruits, vegetables,
1: whole grains, and beans. They don't have to be organic, and you're still going to be like. Fine. I'm with you there. There should there really shouldn't be the the fear that does exist on that because the data that that I'm speaking to, it's two studies and they're very weak (laughs) uh and across the board we see consistently benefits from eating these plant foods uh in populations that, as you say, are eating conventional. So um I think, in, unless there's other evidence that decides to surface, yeah. I think that's a very sensible position. Yeah, I had a, a guy in the podcast. I don't know if you ever heard
0: of him, Dr. Nathan Bryant, and he's probably one of the foremost authorities on nitric oxide okay. in the world. And he was—they've done extensive studies, and he actually has shown that there's actually more nitrates in conventional there realm, you go. Uh, green leafies mm. than in, for example, from the fertilizer from organic. Uh, you know what? I don't know. You know I don't know. I, but <laughs> yeah. But it's just a, you know, it, 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 there's just it's a hodgepodge of stuff that's out there mm-hmm. related to it all. Um, let's dive into keeping our brains young. Yes. And I think like what to me one of the things you write about that's so comforting is you basically talk about how three percent of all our Alzheimer's mm-hmm. are categorically determined by our genes. Only three mm-hmm. percent. So that to me gives so many people a lot of hope out Mm -hmm. there. Um, And then, you know, we've had the Sure's Eyes podcast, who are amazing. But um, you you, you cite in the book, for example, that you have some friends that say, Hey, Simon, you know, there's studies out there, people say that 20% of cholesterol, you know, our brains are 20% cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and 60 percent fat so don't 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 i need all this cholesterol and all this
1: fat yeah and yeah i don't think they realize you know the damage they are doing no i and and we know very clearly if you have high cholesterol in your midlife and we just spoke to how you jack up your cholesterol you're significantly more likely to to develop alzheimer's dementia uh and so and it is you know something else that's quite interesting is the cholesterol that you eat does not cross the blood brain barrier. <laughs> so, it, you know, the cholesterol that's in your brain, <laughs> the cholesterol in your brain is actually manufactured in your brain. Wow. Uh, and if the cholesterol in your egg is crossing into your brain, there's a problem. <laughs> Seriously. A a, there, there is somewhere. a problem. It's called a, a, a leaky. It's instead of a leaky gut, it's a leaky brain. Oh, uh, so that's a real thing. That is a real thing. Uh, and so, um, I do find it a little bit amusing. I get tagged in certain posts that, you know, on social talking about the need to eat cholesterol to then fuel your brain. Um, but that's kind of, I guess, overlooking some of that uh, biochemistry there.
0: Is it the same thing with the fat?
1: Can the fat cross the barrier? Fat fat can cross, uh, but you, you certainly don't want a whole lot of saturated fat in, in your brain. Um that's for sure. Um, you know there are certain fats that are very healthy for for brain function and cognition, and those are the the polyunsaturated fats, mm-hmm. um, uh, omega threes, which people will be quite familiar with. They're they're going to come in your foods like chia seeds and flax seeds and walnuts, and um, so the you know that chapter for me was about. How can I, what information can help people in their day to day protect them against long term neurodegenerative disease? Mm-hmm. And also, how can they fire up their brain in their day to day? Because a lot of these foods that are protecting long term through, you know, dialing down inflammation in the brain, for example, through lowering cholesterol, they, they're also having uh, some acute effects mm. which affect how your brain is operating in your day-to-day. And so, a good example of that uh, is the the polyphenols that are in our uh, colorful fruits and vegetables. Uh, One major example of that being anthocyanins that are in berries. Mm. And it's why I routinely recommend people try and have a serve or two of berries every day. And uh, we've known that polyphenols – Uh, have been associated with good health for quite a time. And I think if when people hear of polyphenols, often people go to red wine (laughs) because resveratrol got marketed. But in fact, you can get much more polyphenols through whole plants and in much higher volumes. And in the last, say, five to ten years, there's been a lot of, uh, emerging science that has really teased out how polyphenols affect our, our cells. And, um, a lot of this has come through advancements in our ability to study and look at the microbiome. Mm. And so, uh, only 5% of these polyphenols, these polyphenols are phytochemicals. Only 5% of these, and they, these are what give the, the blueberry, the kind of dark blue, Uh, pigment and the strawberry the red pigment for example and citrus food the orange pigment Um, only five percent of these are actually absorbed in the small intestine and 95 percent go through to the large intestine and act as prebiotics Mm. right and this is really really interesting and important because uh, through this advancement in research been able to see that those 95% that land in your large intestine, the microbiome metabolize them and they produce about 500 to 1,000 different metabolites. Mm. So, rewind 10 years ago, we actually couldn't even see those metabolites. The technology wasn't there. Now, we're able to see that polyphenols absorbed in the small intestine you know they go they do the five percent of them go through into the blood they only hang around for about an hour whereas these metabolites that are produced hang around your blood for up to two days Mm. right and so um you know this is helping piece together some of the uh the benefits that we see when people consume polyphenol-rich foods. And there is a whole plethora now of studies looking at uh, in children, in adult, in uh, elderly, even elderly with some mild cognitive impairment. If you feed them uh, blueberries, for example, or a blueberry extract, so they get a sort of uh, a large amount of anthocyanins, these polyphenols, equivalent to about a cup, uh and you and then you measure their cognitive function in the sort of 3 to 6 hour period after compared to placebo they perform significantly better mm. and that that difference really seems to be when the when the cognitive task they're given is a challenging one mm. if you give someone just a basic task the addition of polyphenols doesn't really help but if you're putting their brain under some stress and demand then you start to see those who consumed the uh, the berries rich in these polyphenols performing significantly better, uh, and there are some sort of various explanations for that. They've they've been able to see in human studies and animal studies following the consumption of these anthocyanins by about three hour. Uh, Mark, you get peak increase in blood flow to the brain and you get increase in uh, a protein called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like a fertilizer to uh, to help promote neuroplasticity, mm. you know, reorganization of the brain. So, there's all this magical stuff happening um, and, you know, I probably went a little bit into the weeds there, but that's one example in that chapter of... A, a food that you can you can lean into and try and make regular yeah. and and really get some benefits out of, not just in, in the long term, but from today.
0: Yeah. You um, The next section, you talk about how you can add years to your life and life to your years, mm-hmm. which is awesome, and just kind of that, that health span that we have. Um, I, I do want to be sensitive to the time and the fact that, you know, I want you mm-hmm. to be able to catch your flight. But um, part three... Mm-hmm. Of the book, it's basically like making making the shift, and you uh, you basically have the plant proof pyramid, mm-hmm. and kind of you talk about eight different things uh, that you, you think people should do. The first one I absolutely love, and it's basically focused on food groups, not macronutrients. Mm-hmm. And it, everywhere I go, it seems like people, they've got their different apps, and they're plugging in their grams of mm. protein, carbohydrates, and fat, and all that. And uh, it just seems like, you know, since when does mm. is eating food become a, like such a scientific experiment?
1: Yeah, and it's a distraction from what matters most, which is the diet quality. Where are those nutrients coming from? You know, you can have the perfect protein, carb, fat numbers, yeah. but if you're accessing those nutrients from foods that we know are associated with poor health, then what does what does that data really mean?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and and then according to your plate, what would you like that plate to look like?
1: When it comes At to- least half of it is fruits and vegetables, or yeah. one of. Yeah. Um, Particularly those dark leafy greens and cruciferous vegetables. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You 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 want to be having multiple serves of those throughout the day. You have a favorite? Dark leafy green. Yeah. I I, I love arugula, which is I know it's not everyone's favorite. It's it has, a pirate.
0: It's the pirate's favorite. Yeah. I, I, I really man. love
1: it. I I, <laughs> I like it's like a little bit spicy almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but to be honest, I you know, I try and practice what I preach, so diversity is mm-hmm. is important. And uh, I, I try and aim for one big, big dark leafy green salad every single day, no matter how the rest of my diet's looking. It's like a, uh, a mainstay for me, particularly mm-hmm. if I'm at home. Um, so, uh, half the plate is going to be those other fruits or, or uh, vegetables We've got legumes yeah. are going to be in there. And I lean, I lean a little bit more personally into legumes than whole grains, not because whole gra- grains are unhealthy at all, but because I am trying to consume a bit more protein with my training yeah. and legumes are going to be the food group where you get most of your protein in a, a plant-based diet. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, on top of that, usually there'll be some nuts and seeds or like some sort of nut, uh, sort of base dressing over that lemon. Yeah. Uh, sprouts Been big on Sprouts Particularly lately My friend Doug Evans <laughs> He's he's Yeah He's He's uh, I think he's He's changing the way That everyone sees Sprouts Oh my gosh um, He is such a hoot <laughs> So Sprouts And then Don't forget some fermented food, scoop or two of sauerkraut. Uh, But yeah, you know, something like that. That's kind of how I would base my meals. Well, and in in this section of the book, I like the way you talk about nuts as well as
0: maybe not something that you necessarily snack on, but you're great for topping,
1: whether it's Mm. cereal or salad or something like that. Yeah. Well, if you're like me, I know if someone hands me a bag of nuts. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to polish those off. And they are very calorie-dense. You know, there there are some extremely uh, health-promoting properties in nuts. But I think uh, if if you're like me and you do have that problem where one handful becomes seven, eight, then, you know, it's much easier portion control to either put them on top of something, on top of your salad, or a handful into a smoothie and, uh, you know, that way you can sort of manage the yeah. calorie consumption a bit no, better. Six,
0: seven handfuls. I mean one hundred and eighty <laughs> calories per handful. We're talking close to, you know, fourteen hundred calories. Yeah. I've know. been known to do that. Yeah. You can yeah. do some severe damage <laughs> with that. Yeah. And I listen, I I I love nuts. I, I, I really like walnuts. Same. You know? um I think it's probably because of the science that I've read yeah. that, you know, they're the most and I don't know if you'd agree, the most anti-inflammatory and they have the friendliest omega three to omega six yeah. ratio. Um so with with the people that we have that we're typically that are coming to our events mm. and our immersion programs. We recommend about a handful of walnuts a day.
1: Yeah, I that's that's my nut of choice too. Yeah, and uh, I think I had. Uh, you also
0: like the the uh, Brazil nut because of the selenium.
1: Yeah, I like I like one or two Brazil nuts yeah. in the diet. Uh, tasty to too. to get, but again with Brazil nuts, right? Like, and I think that's a bit of a, a good takeaway point here is that. Um, you know, just because the food is healthy doesn't mean it's healthy at any level. <laughs> and like Brazil nuts, I actually like to think of it as a bit of a supplement mm. because they're loaded with selenium. But uh, the problem with Brazil nuts is if you would eat a whole bag, you would actually consuming toxic levels of selenium that's how rich in selenium they are so uh and the upper level sort of intake for selenium is not that high so look at brazil nuts as a supplement uh you know one or two a day you're still going to get some selenium through a lot of other plant foods but that one or two will just make sure you you do tip into that adequate intake level um and yeah you know, to your point, walnuts are certainly, you know, if I'm having a salad or something and I'm going to put some nuts on top of that on those dark leafy greens, yeah. that's, that's the nut that I'm going with for those reasons that you made about the, yeah. about the nutrition yeah. for sure.
0: The, um, you know, po- point number two, and we've really kind of hammered this home is to be fiber obsessed. Um, but you also actually
1: say it's almost like it should be considered like the fourth macronutrient. Mm. Um, I think so. I yeah. mean, and, and, and perhaps should be the first one if someone is going to be plugging into a calculator yeah. uh, because it will, it will, it automatically means your diet will have to straighten up in order to get there again, unless you sort of hack your way there with a fiber supplement. But if we're talking about getting from whole foods, um, you know, it's a, it's something that we should be focusing more on than, you know, protein, for example. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then in parentheses on that one, you do have in protein mm-hmm. aware. Mm-hmm. Is that for certain people that yeah. kind of have a, maybe need a little bit higher uh, protein requirement?
1: Yeah. I, I certainly don't think we need to be protein obsessed. <laughs> I think it's gone a bit far. Um, But usually what happens is when something goes too far like that, then the other side is like, okay, let's just not talk about it at all. And I think it still is worthy of being spoken about. And for a few reasons. One, certainly for athletes that that are like looking to like optimize, you know, and get every bit out of their performance. Uh, It's important for them to understand that they can do that with a plant-based diet. There's ways to definitely consume enough protein. So, I go through that in the book. Uh, And then- I also do make a, a recommendation in there for uh, folks that are over the age of sixty to be conscious if they're eating a completely plant-based diet to make sure they are regularly consuming legumes, yeah. for example. And the reason for this is that, uh, and and I should, and you know, add on top of that, it's not just diet, but it's also continuing to train and say stay strong and move. But the the rationale for that is that we know uh, having lean muscle. And being strong and having strong bones is particularly important in term- for, for longevity. Mm-hmm. So uh, and if we're, if we're talking about muscle for a moment here, um, you know, protein is important for maintaining lean muscle mass along with doing some form of exercise that places the body under some demand um and the actual protein recommendations do go up a bit uh as someone reaches you know 60 and beyond so my recommendation in the book is to to lean a little more into those legumes if you can um when you get to that age and uh from a a bone health perspective you know we we we've reduced bone health to calcium and yes, calcium is important, but it's one like building strong bones is a team game. <laughs> and again, the exercise, the, the the movement needs to be there because structure reflects function. Uh, and yes, calcium is important, but you can consume all the calcium you want in the world. And if you don't have the rest happening, you can develop weak bones. So calcium, you know, C- regularly consuming uh, enough protein it's not about being obsessed and having to to go and have heaps of protein shakes or anything like that but just the the chickpeas and the lentils and the kidney beans and the tofu and the tempeh just keeping these consistently in your diet uh, and I know I have to work with my mum a bit on these she's about 65 and she's noticed her appetite is a bit lower these yeah. days and so it can be it, it gets a little tricky to try and uh, make just remind her to, to, to regularly consume that food group in particular um, you know and in my family uh, we have well, my mum's mum had osteoporosis so uh, you know the protein just to sort of tie that together yes I think that we should be aware of it and we should be you know making sure that we have these very health promoting plant protein rich foods in our diet um, but we we don't need to obsess over it
0: yeah yeah um Number point number three, and I'm just gonna quickly go through these. Yeah, I think that they're so great is uh, you know, diversity is key for the gut health. We've talked about that, you know, with you know, your recommendation, try and get 40, right 40 different unique plants a week. It's a great way to go mm-hmm. and then you're crowding out all the other mm-hmm. you know stuff.
1: And herbs you know? and spices count in that. Good, good, thank you.
0: Yeah, you also talk in, in this particular, Uh, point about resistant starch
1: can you explain Mm -hmm. to people what that is so we spoke about polyphenols and sort of prebiotic fiber uh, but resistant starch is another type of prebiotic and it's a type of uh, indigestible carbohydrate that starch that passes through to the large intestine we don't absorb it in the small intestine Um, and in a similar manner to prebiotic fiber or polyphenols it feeds the microbes and when you feed these microbes, uh, yeah, they're they're producing metabolites that help reduce inflammation, maintain the, the lining of the 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 gut. Um
0: where's that resistant starch found? What foods?
1: So your one of my favorites is potatoes and there's a trick uh to increase the resistant starch in them and that is cook the potatoes. And then allow them to cool, and that can be in your fridge. So, this is great to do with leftovers. If you're doing some baked spuds uh, and cooking up some extras for tomorrow, let them cool in the fridge, and then the next day, you can throw them into a salad or you can recook them again if you want. um, And the resistant starch content of those potatoes will be significantly higher. So, that's a little bit of a potato hack. Yeah,
0: That's a good one. (laughs) Um, Have you ever taken – this is an – but have you ever taken tofu, put it in the freezer, and then watched everything just uh, – uh, that, that tofu completely transforms itself, and then when you use it, it just so absorbs anything you put it put
1: in So it. I have done this, yeah. and I've done it once, and it was amazing. Yeah. The reason I've done it once is because it was the week before I came to the States, mm-hmm. uh, not too long ago, and it was a guest, John Rush. Do you know him? Have you heard oh, of him? Okay. He's a, a professional – Canadian footballer Uh um he's been plant-based for a number of years now Cool, super big guy um very strong and loves his tofu and he he uh brought that to my attention but yeah that's a great that's a great trick
0: so you uh you mentioned him you know you work with a lot of these athletes in Australia um are, are you friends with Chris Hemsworth
1: yeah Chris is a friend of mine and I'm uh the plant-based nutrition uh kind of advisor within here's an app called center uh which is, you know, a combination of workouts and food. And, and I do all the plant based recipes and blogs yeah. and all that sort of stuff is he, in there. Is he plant-based? He's not fully no. plant based, but he's yeah. very plant forward. Right. And I would say, uh, you know, certainly very receptive to new information yeah. uh, and is making a lot of tweaks and changes. So, um, very supportive of it and has given me a huge opportunity within the app to help educate and uh, you know write blogs about you know a lot of things that are in the book to that community uh, so it's been nice to see that that within that community the community there's a very big interest in plant-based foods and um, yeah. yeah it's been fun
0: and uh, he's got some brothers, too, right?
1: He's got two brothers, yeah. Luke and uh, Liam, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, but but Chris is the, uh, the, what, the Hercules guy? or what Thor. Is Thor, that's right. Yeah. Thor. <laughs> Thor. Yeah, that's that, that's pretty cool. Um, so, uh, let's say Thor goes all plant-based, right? Mm-hmm. And you talk about considering nutrients to focus on, mm-hmm. um, omega-3s, B12, D. We've talked about calcium. Um, we've talked about selenium. Can you talk about um, – I want to be respectful here because I could milk you for forever. Uh, <laughs> what about – zinc and iodine i feel like those are two that we. i'm glad you brought up
1: iodine yeah iodine is like the least spoken about but one of the most important particularly for plant-based eaters uh and that stems from anyone from pescatarian to vegetarian to a a completely whole food plant-based person uh And iodine itself is very important for thyroid health, for the production of thyroid hormones, which help regulate our metabolism. Uh, And in a a typical omnivorous diet, uh, you know, a lot of people are getting their iodine through iodized salt. And that's why fortification actually came in because, you know, across the general population, there was problems with iodine. Uh, deficiency. So this is not just a plant-based thing, uh, but can become an issue in a plant-based diet when there is no iodized salt in particular. Um, And also in an omnivorous diet, you'll get a little bit of iodine through seafood and some through dairy. Um, Now, it's very easy to cover in a plant-based diet. I just think that Not everyone is fully aware of how to get it. Uh, You only need a tiny, tiny amount, 150 micrograms a day. It's tiny, minuscule. Uh, And so there are really three ways that you can go about getting it. The first is through uh, nori or wakame or dulse flakes. These are seaweed. Mm -hmm. And you only need a small amount. Two teaspoons of dulse flakes will provide that 150 micrograms of iodine and you can is check is
0: that what you want a day
1: yeah and you can check
0: wow, i haven't been doing anywhere close to that
1: so you can check yeah so you can you can actually check your iodine levels through a, a urinary test with your doctor um that's probably the best most specific way to do it and uh so that's one option is through this regular inclusion of seaweed but i'm also quite aware that not everyone loves seaweed uh and you know I, i've worked with people and they've been able to take those that two teaspoons and put into a smoothie and you can barely taste it uh but some people don't want to go down that route and even with that route you need to be very specific when you buy dulse wakame nori turn around and read on the package how much iodine is in there Mm. because it can vary um iodized salt so this is an interesting one you you probably need around half a, a teaspoon of this uh is not really going to be an issue for someone who is healthy and has healthy blood pressure, but not the best option if you are at risk of cardiovascular disease, have high blood pressure, have cardiovascular disease. So, that's context-dependent, who you are. Um, and then on top of that, uh, you've got supplement and so, you, in, in most multivitamins that you can buy, you can turn it around, check iodine. Is it 150 micrograms? If it is, that's great. Um, otherwise, you can, you can buy an isolated iodine supplement, iodine, just by itself. And there are loads of brands that sell 150 micrograms. And it's a very cheap supplement as well. So, um, quite accessible. The other one was zinc. Yeah. Yeah. So, zinc... Uh, levels uh actually uh, vegetarians and non-vegetarians there there is usually not a significant difference in zinc status i just put it in in the book more for for something to be people to be aware of it's not like vitamin b12 where you need to supplement you know it's more um being conscious of in- regularly including foods that are rich in zinc, mm. like cashews, for example. But again, it's not going. You don't need to go to town on them. You're going to get zinc in a, a sort of uh, through a lot of the different plant foods that you're eating. Uh, but the, I guess one of the big tips in there that I have for people that I think is really interesting is most people are going to have enough zinc in their diet, but you can increase the zinc absorption, mm. which is really helpful. So, a little bit like if you put lemon over your salad, you'll increase your iron absorption. With zinc, if you cook your meals with some onion and garlic, the onion and garlic will increase the zinc absorption. Mm. So, uh, pretty much every time I'm, I'm making a, a meal, I'm, I'm putting onion and, and garlic right, in those, there. Yeah. aromatics. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and- and so, zinc is, is kind of, uh, you know, not, I think, as important as, say, iodine and B12 to kind of zoom in on. Most people will get there. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, when you say when we eat matters, mm-hmm. do you try and eat, let's say, the bulk of your calories um, between, let's say, 8
1: in the morning and 3 in the afternoon? Mm-hmm. Or- in a perfect world… My Yeah, my more food w- when I'm active in the middle part of the day and st- I still have dinner, but it's usually a lighter meal. Right. Um, that, of course, is like not a strict rule. And, you know, when I'm traveling around, I don't follow that perfectly. But there is some science that speaks to your body better metabolizing food, nutrients when you're more active and being a little worse, you know, later at night, particularly if it's like very close to going to bed when... Melatonin's increasing and cortisol's dropping. Uh, you know your body's really preparing to go to sleep, not to make use of the the nutrients in your food. So uh, that section of the book was uh, kind of to summarise. I think there's a lot of crazy ideas out there about fasting and what people need to do and don't do, and and I think you know there is some really good research out of um, Sachin Panda's lab in California. It doesn't need to be too complex for people. You can still have your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner. Uh, should we be eating from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed? Probably not. Probably allow you know a little bit of time when you wake up, have some water, hydrate, and then have have a meal a little bit after that. And uh, before you go to bed, allow some time between your dinner and, and going to bed instead of eating all the way up to going to dinner.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, it seems like... <laughs> And I don't know how, how popular it is right now, but, I mean, a year ago, everywhere I turned, it was intermittent fasting mm. and, you know, yeah, I'm doing sixteen eight, and, you know, I'm eating for mm. eight hours and then I'm not doing anything for 16
1: hours. Yeah. And, you know, for some people that can be helpful for helping control uh, calories yeah. and, and reducing their caloric intake. Uh, but for many people, you know, Particularly if you say start that eating window very early, it means not having dinner with your family. So, it's not going to work for everyone. And I guess when I was looking at the research, what became quite clear to me is that you- There is no really good science to suggest eating in say a very restricted six or eight hour window is significantly better than say a 10 or 12. And a 10 or 12 hour window allows you to have breakfast with your kids, allows you to have lunch at work, allows you to have dinner with your family when you get home. And I think that's going to be much easier for people to adhere to. which, of course, is, you know, very important. You can have all the studies you want in the world, but if it, you can't actually implement that in the real life, yeah. you know, how how valuable is that? Yeah, totally. Uh, what's your beverage of choice during the day? Water. H2O? <laughs> and, tea. And, and tea. And tea. Uh, water, tea, uh, yeah. And, then I and think- coffee. I do drink coffee. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think you cite some, some, some research that shows a little bit of coffee
1: and tea actually can be beneficial, don't you? Yeah, we just had a, we just had a great big mug. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, there is uh, some research for both of those. And again, it probably comes back to polyphenols, yeah. you know, catechins in in green tea and chlorogenic acids in uh, coffee. Surprisingly, coffee is the number one source of antioxidants in the American diet. Now, I'm not sure if that says much about coffee <laughs> or, or about the American diet, Um uh, and I just – I actually just did a podcast with a guy called Danny Lennon on coffee. And there is some interesting findings because uh, acutely coffee can negatively affect lipids and increase c- cholesterol a little bit. But um, – across the, the sort of larger studies looking at health outcomes, it seems to be around two, three, four cups of coffee a day is associated with a reduction in risk of cardiovascular disease. But as you go above that, you get an increased risk. So, um, you know, there there it may be that the, the polyphenols in the yeah. coffee are offering protection. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I think coffee is one of those drinks – that I say to people, if you don't drink coffee, you don't need to start. (laughs) Um, You can get polyphenols from so many other foods. uh, And if you do drink it, then I think what you put in it, think, think strongly about that because, you know, adding the, the full fat dairy and the cream, I'm not talking about that. (laughs) You know, when I'm talking about these studies, I'm just talking about black coffee. coffee. Um, And so, there's some important sort of considerations there.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. You know, my father with his, with his patients, you know, that have had mm. all kinds of heart disease and they're, they're pretty much a hot mess. Um, he kind of keeps their coffee to one, one gla- one cup a day. And he cites some research that actually shows that, uh, the caffeine actually, um, can disrupt and harm the endothelial cells. Mm. Um, but, uh, I don't know how old that study was, but I know.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I think, again, it's, I don't think that that coffee needs to be added. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, those, the studies that, that I'm citing as well, the you know, observational studies, these are showing associations, right. you know, they're not, it's not a, a, a clinical trial cause and effect so we don't have a study for example that says let's uh randomize people no coffee coffee you know these people with heart disease and let's track them for 10 years and see the outcomes. so you know you've, you kind of have to make the most of the data that you've got but um yeah. i'd like to look at that
0: yeah <laughs> i'll forward it to you yeah. <laughs> um don't let perfection be the enemy of the good yeah um, that's um, and I think that that's a really beneficial one that maybe a lot of people can could take to heart because sometimes we get we get a little too hard on ourselves
1: yeah you know and I've, I find myself falling into that trap as well where you constantly think about, you know, every each meal, making sure it's the the healthiest option, and then you know, uh, you know, tomorrow needs to be healthier than today, and you get stuck in that sort of cycle. You can lose your passion for food. Uh, so I think the point of that that there was mainly to remind people that you know consistency over time is much more important than any single meal or food that you eat in one setting. And, you know, by that I'm not throwing out this line of everything in moderation. No, I'm just suggesting that uh, the dietary pattern that you stick to overall for as many years as possible, mm-hmm. that's what's most important here. And, you know, I know through the work that you do and certainly what 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 I do and and, and how I speak to this i don't want someone to change the way they eat just for two weeks and then rebound back because it wasn't sustainable you know you've got to you have to find that dietary pattern that is sustainable for you you know and you you, leaves you feeling good physically mentally you still have your love for food um take some of that pressure off don't worry don't focus on being perfect in every single moment and uh you know, I think that's the the key to 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 building these changes in in a way that makes them sustainable. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things in that section of the book that I read, and I don't think I'd ever read read this before, is that you mentioned how you can eat <laughs> eat certain uh, parts of foods, and you mentioned the banana peel.
1: Mm, You've
0: I've got to put never, those into a curry. I, yeah, I've never
1: ever. I mean, no. So
0: into a curry you have to
1: boil them first okay okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. so so take the banana peels yeah. you know and and i really discovered this because i ate a lot of bananas yeah yeah like a lot like both the- fresh on, on oatmeal in the morning but also uh, a lot of frozen bananas that i'll put into smoothies and make you know nice cream for example yeah, yeah. uh delicious uh and and I was always thinking about these peels. It was like a lot of peels. <laughs> and you can put them into compost and stuff, which is yeah. great. But uh, I came across a, a few recipes where you're using the banana peel. Essentially, it creates like a in a curry a very stringy, almost like pulled pork mm, mm. Uh, sort of texture. So, you know, you boil them first. And then if, then you cook them through in a curry, let them soak up the flavor. Uh, yeah, they're amazing.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, this book, The Proof is in the Plants, you, if I'm not mistaken here, every penny from this book is going to support a... Rainforest in Northern Queensland. Mm-hmm. What's the name of it? You really did read
1: the whole book. I'm impressed. I, I did. I'm so impressed. <laughs> <I did. laughs> Gosh. Um, that's, yeah, that's inspirational. Uh, so the organization is called the Half Cut uh, Organization, and it's actually led by a guy who I had on my show, and he's an interesting uh, fella. His name is James Stanton Cook, but he goes by Jimmy Halfcut, And I met him at an event. Yeah. Uh, there was this uh, environmental kind of climate thing in Bondi where I live. And uh, I saw him from the other side of the room and he has half a beard, right? So, like a big, big beard, fully clean shaven on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, this guy's interesting. I want to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> and so, we got talking and sure enough, you know, and it's a great um, – conversation starter having half a beard right yeah and he's had it for four years and it represents the fact that we've lost half of the world's forests Mm. and so what he's doing through his organization is raising awareness raising funds to help protect existing forests because we yes we need to regenerate but we need to hit the brakes on the clearing (laughs) as well um so there's this you know, huge uh, tropical rainforest called the Daintree yeah. in northern Queensland. It's, it's the, the oldest? world's o- oldest rainforest, it's and it's like the the most biodiverse place almost on earth. Like it's incredible, and uh, so yeah the 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 all proceeds from this book are going to that organisation, and he's actively up there working with the indigenous Australians to buy back the parts of the land that the government sold off in the 80s -hmm. um, and to stop proposed developments through those areas, give the land back to the uh, Indigenous Australians that are from that area and then, um, you know, ensure that it's not cleared. So, uh, yeah, the idea is that if you buy the book, uh, you know, hopefully there's some information in, in there that helps improve your health and at the same time, the uh, the planet. Yeah, and so that forest didn't, or that yeah, that rainforest
0: did not get hit by the,
1: no, the forest fires. Thankfully, but yeah, you know, Queensland's a very very big state, so a lot of those fires were a bit more um, south. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were devastating. Rich was actually he was in uh, Australia when that happened because I remember we had dinner and the the entire sky. Above us was red mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they were horrific, those bushfires, yeah,
0: and another thing that you got going on is you've got a restaurant, right? yeah, I mean, give me a break, like how do you find
1: time for all this stuff? uh I've got a a wonderful partner tanya she's she looks after the restaurant it's her it's really her baby uh so. Uh, we set it up together and of course I'm, I'm very involved in terms of what's on the menu and, and the dishes and stuff that we're bringing out. Um, but she's, you know, she manages it and, and does a great job. Uh, as in Bondi, it's, um, you know, we opened up in an interesting time, the start of the, the bushfires and then into COVID. Wow. Um, but it's still – it's been – when it is open, it's been very, very busy. It's been incredible to see the community get around plant-based food, you know. So, a lot of the, the, the people coming dining with us haven't seen food like this before. Yeah. Uh, so, it's been fun. How far is that from where you live? Oh, I, I walk there. It's like you know, four minute walk.
0: So I mean, whenever you want a good plant, strong meal, you just walk to your restaurant. Yeah, yeah. It's just not
1: fair. I made a, I'm yeah. definitely made a habit of that. Oh my
0: gosh! <laughs> uh, so one of the things I was just looking at is, you know, you've got a great. I love reading acknowledgments,
1: mm-hmm. like,
0: like who you who you thank for helping, you know, make this yeah. come to fruition. There's no dedication.
1: There is. It's at the back.
0: The dedications at the back. Is oh, that, the
1: acknowledgments are at the back. Yeah, the, the gratitude. The back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, Should they be at the front?
0: Well, no, no. Usually, usually <laughs> the acknowledgments are in the back. But then <laughs> yeah. also, you dedicate the book usually to ah, like, right. And There's no like one. So yeah. it sounds to me like it's kind of. I mean, I could be wrong, but your your dad was a huge oh, inspiration for sure. For you.
1: Yeah, you know it's, and this kind of brings us full circle. Yeah. Uh, you know, i I've, I've really. Through this process and reflecting back uh, on my childhood and thinking about the work that he's done, you know, I've I've certainly you know grown to really appreciate his role in science and um, you know me going back and learning nutrition science has taken our relationship to like a whole another level because we have you know now this huge topic to, oh, to yeah. be discussing all the time, and I love that. And, um, you know, his his health journey planted the seed uh, for the book, and, um, you know, I think that that experience, as frightening as it was, it was kind of mm-hmm. – it was necessary. So, is um, your, are your dad and your mom and your brother
0: James, are yeah. they all plant-based?
1: Are they James is – Mum is, and my dad's about ninety percent. Oh, really? So, it's interesting. He he has a, a few foods that he struggles what? with, mainly cheese. Uh-huh. And I'm uh, I'm I'm working to get some some streamer sent over to oh, him. Good, good, uh, good. I'm yeah. chipping away on on that. Like he's made such huge changes to his diet um, that you know I've been super proud of. I, I haven't wanted to sort of drill in on what he's not getting right yet. And I think, I think we're, we're getting there. Well,
0: he needs to read your book.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he does <tells>
0: again. <laughs> again. and again Yeah. And again. That's the cool thing. I mean, you know, but, I powered through this thing, mm. but I can't wait to read it at a slower pace and, mm. uh, and really absorb all this information. Um, kudos to you. Thank you and so much. It is such, such a, a tour to triumph. Um, and thank you for everything you're doing to inspire people and to help um, to help us move the needle mm. as far as getting people more plant predominant. Because as we said here, it's not only about our health, it's about the health of the planet. Yeah. Man, make it happen, people. We need to make it
1: happen. Yeah. Uh, and thank you to you, too. You know, you and, and your dad and many of the people that we've mentioned in this podcast, the Shares Eyes, for example, are uh, all huge influences on me and, and and really paved the way, you know, for so many decades um, to even create this movement, this area of, of well-being. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm super appreciative for well, that. Well,
0: collectively, it's... Um it's kind of like our bones, right? You said it's a team effort. Yeah. And this is this is the ultimate team effort right here. Yeah. And the more people we can get behind and create an amazing, you know, all-star team. And, uh, well, I, I'm optimistic we're going to get there one way or the other. Mm. I don't know if it'll be in five years or 50 years, but we're going to get there.
1: I think so. I mean, there's just so much momentum going in that direction. And I feel you know, some of the change at the government level can seem slow. But, you know, by and large, most of these people that are in government uh, are good people and there's a lot of, uh, you know, mums and dads in there now who have kids and, you know, and they're in government positions and they're thinking about the future for their children. And so it's only a matter of time until, uh, you know, more and more policy is is put into place that is favoring the health of of the planet and future generations so you know i'm i'm incredibly optimistic Mm -hmm. i know not everyone is but you know i just see too too many positive things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh happening not to be Mm
0: -hmm. Mm um have you been to casa de Luz since you've been here
1: yeah Yeah. i have and i went last time too i love it little little macrobiotic place awesome awesome (laughs) it's
0: great um well man I hope you have a great flight.
1: Yes, Next thank time you. you're in
0: Austin, let me know again and let's, let's grab a bite. Let's do it. And um, will you uh, do the sign off with me? Yeah. Ready? Repeat after me? Okay. Peace. Peace. Turn it around. Engine two. Engine two. Keep it plan
1: strong. Keep it plan strong. Yeah.
0: <laughs> again, I want to thank Simon for the eye opening conversation and the really captivating information that could save the lives of so many. To order his book, The Proof is in the Plants, visit Plantproof.com or the episode page at PlantStrongPodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kortowicz, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn, Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.